When we began our study in 1 Timothy last fall, we asked ourselves this question. What does a faithful church look like? What priorities does a faithful church pursue? What should mark us? There's a podcast that came out around the same time that I believe is likely familiar with a lot of us that I believe is a vivid illustration of what happens when a church falters on what we've been looking at in 1 Timothy. The podcast is titled The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's a, bod- it's a podcast detailing out and unpacking how a mega church went from a multi-campus ministry to closing its doors almost overnight. It's also a story of what happens when a culture embraces the celebrity culture and a pastor focuses more on being a celebrity than a pastor. And you can see throughout these episodes what the church gave themselves to that led to their demise. Things like building a brand for themselves, being on the edge, making a name for themselves, self-promotion, fame, all the while neglecting precisely what we've been covering in First Timothy. The first episode of that podcast series asks the question, who killed Mars Hill? And while it is tempting to say that it was the main preaching pastor, Mark Driscoll, that's not where the episode lands. What about the people who gave him a platform and overlooked glaring character flaws because what he preached, quote-unquote, worked and brought people into the doors? What about all the elders and staff who worked with him up close and saw that he didn't meet the biblical qualifications of an elder? What about all those who listened to him and fueled his pride that his questions at times were questionable? In some sense, who killed, Mark, who killed Mars Hill wasn't Mark Driscoll, but every individual that gave him that platform. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 21, Paul gets personal and turns his attention to Timothy himself. If Timothy is to avoid these pitfalls of these false teachers, if he is to withstand the opposition, and if he is to remain faithful to the precious gospel that he is being entrusted with, he must pursue these four things that we will unpack. Give himself, he must give himself to these things. He must urge them in both himself and in those he's shepherding. And if we as a church are to remain faithful to the gospel, we must pursue these four things. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 21, we see four pursuits, four pursuits to maintain faithfulness to the gospel, four pursuits to maintain faithfulness to the gospel. The first pursuit to maintain faithfulness to the gospel is holiness. You see this in verses 11 and 12, and there's three aspects to this. There's a fleeing from, there's a pursuit after, and there's a fight for. Let's look at the flee from aspect first. Look at verse 11. But flee from these things. The word flee in this verse is a strong word. It means to take flight or to flee away or from. It's stronger than just don't do it. Because the Christian life isn't just about what you don't do as a Christian. It's about what you flee from as a Christian. The tense of this verb flee stresses the constant and continuing duty of fleeing. Not just a one-time event, but an ever-pressing need for Timothy to continue doing. One commentator writes, be ever fleeing. Never let them catch you. I love this next phrase. The margin of safety can never be too great. Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians to instruct the church at Corinth to flee from sexual immorality and idolatry. 1 Timothy 6, what is Timothy to flee from? 
Well, these things. These things are referring to what Paul had just been talking about in the previous verses. Namely, the vices that have gripped the hearts of these false teachers. Which is, namely, love for money and unhealthy controversies. So obsessed are they about being right and about niche issues and debating that they're willing to negate the gospel and live contrary to it. They've lost sight of grace and have clung instead to meaningless controversial questions and disputes about words. Their actions show that they do not understand what they are teaching. And they've used and they've become greedy, using ministry as a means for financial gain. And what has been the result? Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What's been the result? They've left the faith. Stay away from that, Timothy. Don't pursue it. Flee it like the plague. In short, Timothy is to be everything that these false teachers are not. So let me ask you, when you see a field ministry, either of a pastor or a congregation, do you gawk at the moral failures of that ministry? Or does it cause your heart to take sin more seriously? To flee things like selfish ambition and greed with even more zeal, lest you go there yourself? Notice the next phrase, you man of God. Paul is drawing a stark contrast here between Timothy and these false teachers by calling Timothy a man of God, unlike these false teachers. The ESV includes the O, which better captures the emotion of this phrase. The ESV reads, but as for you, O man of God, this is emphatic plea from Paul to Timothy. Timothy is a man of God. What does that mean? There's only one other place where Paul uses this descriptive phrase. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, a familiar passage, I think, to most of us. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The use in 2 Timothy 3 is used to describe any Christian, anyone who fears and honors the Lord and seeks to serve him. The phrase man of God is also used in the Old Testament to describe people like Moses and David and various other prophets. This is not to say that 1 Timothy is another prophet like those called out in the Old Testament, but that his way of conduct was to be marked by holiness, like those who have gone before him. The emphasis is on Timothy's devotion to God rather than his position before God. The pursuit of holiness not only includes a fleeing from, but a pursuit after You see this pursuit in the second half of verse 11. Timothy is to pursue things like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. The first two characteristics provide the external piety of any Christian, righteousness and godliness. So let me ask you, do you find yourself increasingly conforming to the standards of Scripture in your life? What others in your life, perhaps in your workplace or in your home, describe your character as Christian. The middle two characteristics provide the core inward disposition of a true and genuine follower of Christ, faith and love. So do you find yourself increasing in your love for God? Or has that waned over time? 
Do you find your faith increasing as you times as the times grow more and more uncertain, or do you find yourself wavering? The last two characteristics, perseverance and gentleness. Timothy would need these as he faces his opponents. So let me ask you again. Are you willing to persevere when progress seems slow in ministry, when you're ministering the word perhaps to an individual in this church or your neighbor? Is your response gentle and kind when your opponents on social media comment on why you are wrong in your Christian beliefs? If we are to pursue holiness, we must not only flee from greed and foolish controversies or pursue Christ-like character, but we must also fight for it. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Paul is borrowing language typically used in an athletic competition. The word means to contend for a prize or to struggle or to strive to win. Think about a wrestling match. Don't let up, Timothy. Keep going. Go to the mat for this. Don't back down, Timothy. Paul goes on to refer to this good confession that Timothy made. You see this in the second half of verse 12. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. No one knows definitively what Paul is referring to. Paul never clarifies what this good confession is in this letter. Perhaps this is Timothy referring to his public baptism um, when he first became a believer, or perhaps when he was commissioned to the ministry. We're not sure. Besides the point, Timothy started well and is being exhorted to finish well. I'm reminded of a phrase, of, of a quote from John Owen in his book, Mortification of Sin. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Either you fight to the death of sin, or sin will fight to the death of you. That's the first pursuit. Pursue holiness. There's a second pursuit that Paul exhorts Timothy to pursue after if he is to maintain faithfulness to the gospel. Pursue the fear of God. Pursue the fear of God. That's verses 13 through 16. Here, Paul piles up one weighty, rich, theological reality on top of another so that Timothy will not shirk back in fear of his opponents, but instead that he will pursue the fear of God. Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God. The word for charge here can mean command or to order. It's not as if Paul is giving this order, but that Paul gives this order in the presence of God. He reminds Timothy of who he will answer to on that final day. He reminds Timothy of his accountability to God. He goes on, Not only is God watching, but every breath that you take is from him. God is the creator of life. We see that in the second half of verse 13. Who gives life to all things? God is the giver of life. Every breath that you take is a gift from him. Apart from him, there is no life. God the Father has created us, and therefore God alone has the right to order and command how we live our lives. God owns us, not these false teachers, Timothy. Paul not only refers to God the Father and his charge, but Christ the Son. Look at the second half of verse 13. And of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Paul makes a link here between the good confession that Timothy made and the good confession that Jesus made. It's the same word. As if to somehow link Jesus' confession with Paul's confession. So what, what do we make of this? 
Paul was likely referring to John 18, where Jesus proclaimed before Pontius Pilate, saying this, Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. It's John eighteen thirty seven. Of course, Pilate didn't understand what Jesus meant and asked him, what is truth? And eventually ordered him to be crucified. Christ didn't waver in his proclamation of truth, even though it cost him his very life. Reminds me of John fifteen twenty, where Jesus says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So when you experience suffering or difficulty in your Christian life, perhaps at work when a certain employee doesn't treat you the same because they know what you believe, or you make a difficult call at work because of your Christian convictions, or perhaps at the dinner table, at Thanksgiving when certain family members shun themselves from you because of your Christian profession, what is your response? Does it cause your heart to be surprised, afraid, nervous, concerned? All of these Jesus is familiar with and understands. He is a faithful high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and be a strong help and aid in the thick of the storm. Regardless if it's with your boss at work or against these false teachers in a church, Jesus Christ has gone before us and he has conquered. And what exactly is Paul charging Timothy to do? In verse 14, Paul writes that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. That is, guard the gospel. Guard its purity. Guard its integrity, Timothy. Paul is ending the book where he started. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Timothy had been charged to remain at Ephesus so that he would ensure certain men in the church not to, cheat, not to teach strange doctrines. Paul's ending by charging Timothy with the very same thing. Guard the gospel. Guard it against false doctrine. Guard it against false teaching. Don't back down on this, Timothy. Don't let up. Next, Jesus describes the duration of Timothy's charge. Look at the end of verse 14. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. Timothy is dealing with matters larger than life itself. Have eternity in view here, Timothy. Don't become short-sighted. And just when will Jesus return? At the proper time. No one knows the day or the hour. God is faithful, and he will return. And yet he is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but he will return. Things will not continue as they always have. The day of the Lord is coming, and when it comes, it will come like a thief in the night, and it will come unexpectedly, and it will come irreversibly. Look at the second half of verse 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords. He who is blessed, the only blessed. What does it mean for God to be the only blessed? One commentator writes, God alone possesses within himself all that is necessary for his complete, contented happiness. God did not create a world out of loneliness or a deficit of some kind. Before creation, God resided in complete self-satisfaction and self-sufficiency. Now since creation, he continues as the only such being. All others derive their blessedness from their proximity and relationship to him. God is the source of all true blessedness 
for his creation. Paul continues on, the only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. I'm reminded of Proverbs 21 verse 1 which says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The Lord is the God over every ruler and king that has been and ever is and is the only thing, and the only ruler and God is the only ruler in the world that will fulfill the purposes the kings will fulfill the purposes of God and not go one inch further. And they will not be afforded anything more than to fulfill the purposes of God. So let me ask you, do you trust that? Do you fear God or do you fear when your political party is losing? As our culture increasingly becomes more and more hostile to the gospel, and yes, that's happening, and to Christianity, and as the opposition, opposition and pressure increases, how tempted are you to downplay your Christianity? Rehearse these truths to yourself in those moments. Remind yourself both of who the Lord is and who is ultimately in control. And lastly, we see that Timothy should pursue the fear of God because God alone possesses immortality and God alone is holy. Look at verse 16. Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. The word immortality here is used only here in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe one who is not able to die. One day, according to 1 Corinthians 15, we will inherit immortality, but God alone is not subject to death. All will answer to him. Not only that, but God alone dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen God or can see God, not Moses or Elijah or anyone at any time. God, Paul then concludes all of these weighty, rich theological statements by concluding with a doxology. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Timothy, who are you to fear? These false teachers or this God? Pursue the fear of God. Remind yourself of these things. Rehearse these truths to yourself when you're tempted to fear. And who will you fear? When you're in conversation with your neighbor, perhaps, and you could push the conversation further to talking about the gospel and talking about their very souls. Will you fear God or will you fear man? That's the second pursuit, to maintain faithfulness to the gospel. Pursue the fear of God. There's a third pursuit that Paul urges Timothy towards. Pursue hope in God. We must fear God, but we must also hope in God instead of anything else, including riches. You see this in verses 17 through 19. Paul, earlier in this chapter, gave instructions and warnings against those who desire to be rich. And Paul will now instruct those in the church who are rich. Because as one commentator put it, Being rich is a spiritual liability. Let me say that again. Being rich is a spiritual liability. I don't think we often think of being rich in those terms. I think we often think of being rich and we think of the term blessed. Blessed by God are we when we get a better job or when we have a purchase made for a better house, or when we graduate with a prestigious degree, we're blessed by God. 
And certainly those are gifts from the hands of the Lord. But do you consider how to keep your heart from the seductive nature of wealth? Paul instructs Timothy regarding how to shepherd and instruct the, ch- the rich in the church to hope in God instead of wealth by focusing on two things not to do followed by two things to do. Two negatives followed by two positives. The first negative or warning is against becoming conceited. Look at this first half of verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. The word instruct in verse 17 is translated charge in verse 13, where Paul said, I charge you in the presence of God. The tense is again present tense, describing an ongoing instruction or duty. This is not a one and done, but this is an ever-pressing need for the believer. And what is he to instruct or charge the rich not to do? Not to be conceited. I'm reminded of a passage in Deuteronomy 8. It's a favorite of mine where the Israelites are warned against becoming proud when they enter to the promised land. Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks, and listen to how many times he uses the word multiply here in these next few verses. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then what? Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And we can easily forget, can't we? Let me ask you this. How often do you remind yourself that God is the one who has provided you everything that you have? You might be tempted to say, well, I've I've worked for it. Right. But who gave you those talents and abilities? What about the opportunities and training and education and the right people that you ran into providentially to get you those talents and abilities and to get you the job that you have? Do you remind yourself of the faithfulness of God and how God sustains you when it comes to your line of work? Don't become conceited. Hope in God instead of wealth. The second negative or the second warning that Paul gives to those who are rich in the church is against the unpredictability of riches. Look at the second half of verse 17. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Scripture frequently speaks on this very fact. While wealth may appear to provide stability, riches are in fact volatile and unstable. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. The stock market is perhaps a very real, recent, and painful illustration of this. You remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, where he says, store up treasures for yourself in heaven. What's the reason that Jesus gives for why you should store up treasures in heaven instead of on earth? Because it's where moth doesn't destroy or rust or thieves don't break in and steal. That's the very thing that Paul is reminding Timothy of. Riches are uncertain. It's a shaky foundation to invest in. So let me ask you, do you see yourself loosening your grip on wealth as you increase in your hope in God or tightening your grip 
when uncertainty comes your way? How has your heart responded to the recent economic uncertainty? Has it caused your heart to obsessively plot and plan and research? Or has it shifted your focus back onto the Lord? And let me just say this. Control is an illusion. Control is an illusion. Money gives you the illusion that you are in control. It may feel like you're the one in control when there's money in the bank, but my friend, don't set your heart on these things. Riches are uncertain. Will you cling to the one who is steady and certain, or will you cling to that which is uncertain? That's exactly where Paul goes next. After warning the rich in the church not to be conceited, he instead encourages them to hope in God, which I believe is the heart of this section. And notice the descriptive phrase that Paul gives here. It's not just that, it's not just hoping God he'll take care of you, or even just a note on how God provides us with what we need. No, it's much more abundant than that. Look at the second half of verse 17. But on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. I think we can get a little uncomfortable with verses like this because, well, it sounds too much like the prosperity gospel. While it's obvious that the prosperity gospel is against the gospel and not biblical, God doesn't send you with his own, is he? What kind of father is he but the one who loves to give his children good gifts? And not only that, but notice what we're to do with what God has richly supplied the rich with. Notice the word enjoy. That's, that's profound. While we must never confuse the gift with the giver, it is not wrong to enjoy the gift that God provides. Thank God for it. That's part of worship, by the way. Not only to enjoy God, but to enjoy what God provides, recognizing him as the giver of every good gift. The second positive so that the rich in the church would hope in God, is to be generous. That's verses 18 and 19. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Notice the play on words here. Let the rich be rich in good works. They are to be ready to share, eager to bless others instead of themselves, increasing in a love for other people that results in a deep desire to bless others and pursue another's benefit instead of their own. Verse 19 describes the type of investment that being rich in good works does. It provides for a steady foundation, one that can't be taken away by robbers or thieves. And they experience life which is truly life, life to the full, life as it ought to be. There's also the idea in this passage that the rich aren't just giving of their money, but of themselves. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, which is more than just money. Our culture here today says to consume more to be happy. The gospel says to give of yourself in order to be happy. Jesus said in Matthew sixteen twenty five, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A heart that is consumed with self is far away from Jesus. The more you refuse to share in terms of your time, in terms of your money, your car, your kitchen table, all of it, the less happy you will be. 
and the less firm your foundation is and the less credible your Christian profession is. So let me ask you a few questions. So the next time you get a raise at work, how much goes towards increasing your standard of living and how much goes towards advancing the kingdom of God? When you think of something that you do not currently have, maybe on the Amazon app or Walmart as you're cruising through the stores and it's not really on the budget, it's not really in the plan, but it's something that you notice that you do not currently have. How many times do you tell yourself no versus yes when contemplating that item, purchase? How much do you invest financially and otherwise in ministries that are focused on advancing the kingdom of God? I think oftentimes we think too little of the spiritual investments that we could be making versus the material investments that the world wants us to make. I think about the churches, for instance, that could be planted in areas where there is no church. Perhaps Christian families that otherwise wouldn't be able to adopt because of financial limitations. Or the people who would hear the gospel or see the glories of Christ more clearly because you've given yourself to these things. Pursue the hope in God. Pursue hope in God to maintain faithfulness to the gospel. There's a fourth and final pursuit to maintain faithfulness to the gospel. Pursue right doctrine. In our pluralistic post-modern, post-morality, post-truth culture, doctrine still matters. It matters what you believe about Jesus and the resurrection and that he physically rose from the dead. It matters what you believe about the atonement. It matters what you believe about hell and Christology and soteriology. It matters because without doctrine, there is no gospel. And it's not as if Doctrine is this dry and crusty thing reserved for the studious and intellectual in the church. No, notice the first word in verse 20. It's important. O. O Timothy. Do you see, do you feel the emotion in that word? O Timothy. Doctrine is not this dry and crusty thing for Paul. This is what he has risked his very life for. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. And what has Timothy been entrusted with? But the very gospel itself. Paul is beginning, ending the letter where he started the letter. In verse 1, verse 3, rather, of 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul wrote, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, what is Timothy to do? Remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange Doctrines, doctrines that are contrary to the gospel, doctrines that are against the gospel, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The strange doctrine that Paul spoke of at the beginning of the book, he describes as worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge at the end of the book. When Paul says worldly and empty chatter, he's not talking about chatter that's annoying, but rather chatter that is opposed to God. It's empty and void of any substance or any truth. It's full of lies. It's useless. The phrase opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge carries this idea of contradictory knowledge from what the apostles had revealed to the church. They've spoken against the apostles and what they've revealed. 
There's no room for this in the church, Timothy. Don't let up. Eternity is at stake, which is where Paul goes next in verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. Which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. The word professed in this verse carries this idea of to announce or to proclaim. These are not new Christians that are stumbling and around in their words and trying to articulate things that are new to them and things they don't quite understand. No, these are people who are intentionally professing. They're intentionally clinging to doctrines that are against the gospel and against what these false teachers have taught and proclaiming against that. And lastly, as Paul urges Timothy to guard the gospel and reject false teaching, Paul knows that Timothy cannot do it by himself in his own strength. He needs the Lord. He needs grace. That's why Paul concludes with these words, grace be with you. Grace be with you, Timothy. As we seek to remain faithful, we need the grace of the Lord. We need God to obey God. May grace be with us as well. Four pursuits to maintain faithfulness to the gospel. Pursue holiness, pursue the fear of God, pursue hope in God, and pursue right doctrine. So let me ask you, are we a faithful church as we conclude the book of 1 Timothy? I'm grateful to God that although we're not perfect, we seek to faithfully minister the word from this pulpit instead of that which is culturally relevant. That we have elders in this church who are guided by the word instead of ministry pragmatics. That we have humble men, by God's grace, who seek the promotion of Christ instead of themselves. And we have a church body that seeks to minister to one another with the word, prayer, and meals week in and week out. To God be the glory for that. But lest we become spiritually arrogant and proud, will we continue to stand by the word of God, regardless of how fiercely opposed our culture is to it? Will we hold fast to our good confession in spite of how hostile our world gets? I hope so. By the grace of God, we will. Let's pray. Father, as we seek to be faithful to you in light of what we've read, grant us grace. Grant us grace as we guard the gospel and the precious doctrines that are contained within. Fix our eyes on Jesus and on eternity that we may not fail in our faith. Give us eyes to see clearly the glory of Christ, that we may not fear men, and cause our hearts to be inclined to you instead of the the seductive force of wealth. Protect us, O Lord, from apathy or drifting, and help us as we strive together for the faith of each other. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in singing together. Our mouths were open graves Full of broken vows we made Our hearts ran wild Our tongues could not be tamed What darkness had conceived your law has now revealed our guilt was great 
t r u e 